Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson podcast on justthenews.com. I hope you'll check out all the Just the News podcasts. You can go to justthenews.com and see the list of them on the homepage. Today, a controversial and important topic. It has to do with whether the descendants of slaves should get paid by white people who never owned or met a slave. Today, you're going to hear from two sides in the great reparations debate, the discussion over whether white Americans today owe black Americans for things that took place between and among their ancestors. Well, it might end up that people whose ancestors were on the opposite side of what's assumed today would end up paying and or benefiting. It gets confusing, as you'll hear, and that's part of the debate. First, we'll hear from a slave descendant named Melisanda Short Colomb, who advocates for reparations being paid to black Americans today. Then we'll hear from a civil rights activist named Robert Woodson, who's black, and thinks reparations is a terrible idea. First, here's Melissa Short Colomb. I was involved and became involved because of the statement that Jack DeJoya made in September of 2000. 16 that descendants would be offered or conferred this legacy status if you meet the requirements to come to Georgetown University as a student. Um, I had some concerns about this. Uh, I knew my family was enslaved. I knew my family originated here in Maryland and was part of the internal human trafficking trade that existed in America. Um, I knew that. What I did not know was that my family was enslaved and trafficked by the Jesuits and the Catholic Church. So how did you get that? How did you learn that information? I got that information that I was part uh, of the descendant families in July of 2016. I was contacted by Judy Rifle, who is uh, the lead genealogist for the Georgetown Memory Project, which was started by uh, Georgetown alum Richard Cellini for the sole purpose of identifying descendants of those families who were trafficked in 1838. And then what happened? How did that grow into? That grew into my pondering and having a bit of a conundrum when the institution or the the leader of the institution who benefited most from the sale of those families said, send your children to us, we got them. When in fact, the reason why this became public knowledge was because it was forced. So you- Tell tell me about that, I didn't know. Right, Um, students in 2015 sat in the president's office because they were black students 
uh, multi-generational black students, um, African-American students, and students of color on Georgetown's campus, which is a very small part of their population of students, were taken aback by the reality that they were sleeping in buildings and going to school and classes in buildings that were named after enslavers and human traffickers. So for a population of Americans, this is not acceptable. So the students did something about it. They sat in. They had some um, they had some student recommendations for the institution. So the president pulled together a working group on slavery and reconciliation. Um, and the students and professors and administrators, and I think there was one Jesuit that was part of the group, worked over an academic school year and came up with solid recommendations for the institution plus um, recommendations. That was to remove those names of those enslavers, to rename the buildings more appropriately to reflect the population of the institution and to acknowledge the involuntary founders of the institution because when you walk into the gate you see John Carroll. His brother signed the Declaration of Independence. His whole family here in America were slavers. They enslaved my great-great-grandparents 11 generations ago. So we have people in America, whether you got here in 1508 or your, your uncle threw you over the fence, that is such a problem yesterday, everybody comes to America voluntarily. Nobody forced you to come here and then enslaved, robbed you of your free opportunity, enslaved your family, wrote laws about the continuing disenfranchisement. There are 700 institutions and colleges in the United States of America that were in existence in 1865. So Georgetown is doing something what about everybody else? So, skip from, it sounds like the first thing they offered was yeah. you could come to school. Mm -hmm. um, when did the reparations actually, pay, the idea of payments arise in that? Um, that was, uh, I was still a student and part of that advocacy team. But it was very much a student-led initiative. Because the students who were first-year students in 2015 and 2019 were graduated and they saw that what happened in 2015 was being lost in the generational memory of the institution, which institutions do. Students cycle in and out every four years. You start year one, 
eight semesters later, you're out. The institution doesn't have to change. The students who come into Georgetown are the lifeblood of the institution as every institution. So the students took up the president's recommendation to forever be engaged with the descendant community. Most institutions say, well, we have no money for that. Even though an economic system of wealth, the United States of America was built on the enslavement and disenfranchisement and genocide of people. But now you don't have no money. So now everybody has to start a GoFundMe or raise some money or go to your benefactors or to your alumni who give you money for specific reasons but don't want to touch that. So the students said, you know what? We're going to talk about this. We're going to inform other students. We're going to engage in this and take it to the students as a legislative voting body. And the students get to decide if forevermore into the future for eight semesters coming to Georgetown, you're going to pay an extra $27.20 to the rest of the $75,000 that you're going to pay for this education a year. $27.20 is one one-thousandth of the tuition, which at the time was $27,000. So it's a, for four years, eight semesters, you pay $27.20. People care about their money. So it wasn't a charitable thing, which was the alternative to what the students voted on. We'll ask people to do this if they want to. And the students were like, no, this should be mandatory. Was that in 2019? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the students voted on it. Overwhelming turnout of students uh, in the history of Georgetown students voting. Uh, and they get to vote the easy way. They open a computer and press a button. They don't have to stand in line or do any of that. So that 66% of 18 to 22 year olds turned out and voted yes is the first time any voting body before the current concentration, which is long overdue, um, the students voted to raise their own tuition. Now the institution said, well, we can't raise your, your tuition for that. But they raise tuition all the time. So that has basically um, been taken over by the administration. They continue to work in the way that institutions work. And this history is 400 years old. So do we expect that in five years, we pick a guy and say, oh, they're doing the most? 
this is bigger than all of us, and it encompasses every one of us. So back to the mechanics, though, a little bit. They voted to do the student fee, the $27 mm-hmm. fee. That's being collected now. No. No? So whatever happened to that? Nothing. So the, 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 the administration said, yes, right. the administration said no. Well, anything that the students vote on has to be approved by the board of directors. It never went to the board of okay. directors. Uh, the president of the university and the president's office said, we're going to do it this way. So the vote of the students was disregarded, which is indicative of how things go in America. Because microscopically and in a microcosm, you can look at the history of Georgetown and you will find the history of the United States of America. The Constitution was signed in 1789. The Supreme Court convened for the first time in 1789. And in 1789, Georgetown College was the first school in America to be granted the right to confer degrees by Congress. Georgetown University, we have all of the Ivy League schools, but only Georgetown, the not Ivy League, but Catholic institution, is in Washington, D.C. People have children. They bring their families. They brought their sons to be educated at Georgetown and all of these Ivy League schools. And those are the people who went out and made really bad laws to keep people enslaved and disenfranchised, and they still do it today. So what do you think of the plan now by the Jesuits to make amends and to actually put money forth? Well, they haven't. They put $15,000 up in escrow, I suppose, to pay the fundraisers that they've hired with the Kellogg Foundation and the Descendants Truth and Reconciliation group to raise $100 million over the next three to five years. That is not money. Nothing can be done by that group until $100 million has been collected in the account. But for the last, since 2015, Richard Cellini, Judy Rifle, the Georgetown Memory Project, have identified 10,600 descendants from those 314 people. And there are about 5,000 of us alive today. And guess what? We're still being born. So how, okay, practical sense, let's say however money is raised or however money comes, whether it had even been the student fees, how is that distributed in a fair way to... Well, it's about building equity in our society as human beings to improve for all of us how we live. 
institutions have taught the lost cause narrative of the South was imposed upon by the North. There were no bad guys. It was a, 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 a insurrection and a rise up to stop states' rights. States' rights to do what? What was the states' right they wanted to keep and expand? That was to keep people enslaved. That was the states' right. And those same states today, the 13 states that, con that surrendered at the end of the Civil War have, have spread out across America through education and the idea that there were no bad guys. Yes, there were. And the bad guys were the people who wanted to keep other human beings enslaved for their benefit, not the enslaved people. So how do you apply equity? How do you, it's just a huge job what you're talking about. Right, maybe you should ask yourself and your peers that because you are inheritors of this as well. So I don't have those answers. I am being an active participant in what makes America better while there are active participants who are opposed to that. So I can't be okay if there are still people out there who want to see me oppressed and deprived of my rights to vote, to freedom, to liberty. And it is saying that these people can have nice things and those people can't. But everybody came here voluntarily, except for multi-generational black families. So in practical terms, there are a lot of questions. I think we should all get together and start talking about them in an open and respectful way. I don't have the answers. I'm busy doing things. And y'all calling me up to say, can we talk? So. So I just thought if you put some thought into it and had an idea, I'm not trying to make you oh, say I you should have of, the answer. I, but. I have lots of ideas. I came to Georgetown. I came to Georgetown because I don't trust the people who enslaved and sold my family and then didn't talk about it for 180 years and were surprised by it in 2015. I'm supposed to entrust so how has my that, family with them. How has that been? Because you did, you said you were mixed on whether you should even take advantage of the offer that was provided. Right. How, how did you reconcile that? I came. It was that simple. There was no reconciliation. I applied. I went through all of the processes. I was committed to coming when I made the application, and I made the application because I did not trust what the institution said. And just like it was not to be trusted, in 2019, students had to step up again. So here we have 2021. The students that I came into Georgetown with are graduating this year. If I had stayed on the traditional path, I would be 
presenting everybody with the end of the feel-good story. She came to Georgetown, she conquered, and she's got a diploma. That's not why I came there. I came to bring something to Georgetown, which is the representation along with other students, because I'm not the only one, who came to Georgetown and took them up. And my class of students this year, who have been undergraduate students, have engaged with this topic on Georgetown's campus for eight semesters. You're an undergraduate student for eight semesters. You're alumni forever. So because of the interaction that I'm having and have had with the young people who are my peers, because they get it. Georgetown has stepped up in a leadership position. I expect them to use all the expertise that they have at their fingertips and in their students and their alumni and connections in the world to figure that out. After a short break, a starkly opposing viewpoint. Tasks, deadlines, and projects. What if your teams had a tool that brought everything together? Trello is the project management tool that powers collaboration for over 2 million teams across the globe, including 80% of Fortune 500s. Trello brings teams together by tracking daily to-dos and provides a high-level view across projects and teams. From product development and design to support and production, Trello helps all teams move their work forward together. Thousands of IT admins around the world trust Trello to keep their work safe. With Trello, your teams will have access to hundreds of top-tier integrations they can rely on. A big reason why Trello is top-rated for employee satisfaction. It's where companies do their best work. Trello for enterprise. Learn more by visiting trello.com slash for enterprise. That's T-R-E-L-L-O dot com slash for enterprise. We're back talking about reparations. Now, Robert Woodson, president and founder of the Woodson Center. We're a national not-for-profit that I founded 40 years ago, and our mission is to assist low-income leaders in high-crime, drug-infested neighborhoods to develop self-help programs to, deli- to make them agents of their own recovery and the restoration of their community. And what was your role or what interest did you have in the civil rights movement as that was going on? Uh, as a young civil rights uh, uh, worker, I uh, led civil rights organizations in Westchester, Pennsylvania in the 60s. Uh, in Barrett Rustin's uh, hometown of Westchester, Pennsylvania. And I led demonstrations on the Human Relations Council and Vice President of the NAACP. And I led demonstrations against discrimination in, it, in uh, schools and in housing. If you could briefly define reparations, what is that to you? Reparations is supposed to be some uh, material compensation for slavery. And I really, though, think it's a distraction. It's very interesting. Back in the 60s, we were talking about the clenched fist, black power, and self-determination. Today, we have devolved to Black Lives Matter with the hand out, asking for compensation. 
So I just think uh, reparations is really a distraction. It, it deflects attention away from the real uh, challenges facing uh, the black community and the country. Do you remember when you first heard the notion that there should be reparations? Yeah, I did. It's, it's been around for a long time. Uh, even back then, uh, there was some discussion, but it was, a, a, it was for debate clubs on campuses around the country. <laughs> uh, but it was never really discussed as a serious strategy. I think because in the 60s, we were concerned about more immediate issues like desegregation, uh, about ending Jim Crow. So, um, right, we were interested in, in the barriers that, that we were facing and less concerned about compensation. What do, you think, what do you think is wrong with the idea of people trying to at least make something right? Things can't be fixed, history can't be changed, but what's wrong with making amends? Well, it, it turns to what you mean by making it right. It's a complicated issue. For instance, you're talking about compensation for slavery that happened hundreds of years ago. It's not like something that happened last week and someone took something from you and you can identify the person who took it and therefore you can say you want compensation for it. That's one issue. But something that happened hundreds of years ago, the very fact that there were thousands of freed blacks who owned slaves there were Native Americans, the, these five civilized tribes. There were 5,000 slaves when they were on that trail of tears. They took with them thousands of African slaves. Now, do the offsprings or the, the families of those uh, Indians who own slaves, do they pay? <laughs> How about the, the, uh, the, the descendants of the free blacks that own slaves, do they pay? I mean, it gets really into a complicated discussion of how much gets, who, who determines who gets what. And, and then the question is, can you monetize the pain of slavery? How do you monetize something that gross? And so, but the whole discussion deflects attention away from the more critical issues. In other words, uh, in terms of the, the black community, by discussing reparations, it really fixes the problem as being external. The problems that are facing low-income people that is concerned to my organization, the problems that they're facing and challenges can't be fixed through by giving them money. You can't even close the wealth gap by giving people money. Wealth isn't determined by how much money you receive is determine well, how wisely you invest and use the money that you have. So even to hold the discussion about the role of money in compensating from, from the past, again, it deflects attention away from solutions to real problems that face. Georgetown is doing something that is fairly specific. They actually know and can trace the people, the names, the families that are involved that they think they owe reparations to. Is that an exception? Does that make sense? No, here, here again, what is the purpose? Is it to punish white people for the sins of the past? Are we seeking cosmic justice? I think we have to be clear as to what is the purpose of it. And if you were to take those 200 families and give them money, unearned income is like winning the lottery. 
what happens to the majority of people who even win the lottery? So is your goal really to punish whites by getting Georgetown to punish and therefore the act of giving these 200 families money is supposed to then absolve uh, Georgetown of the sins of its past? And what is it going to do for those families? Yeah, anyone could use any, I would like some more money. <laughs> but it is not a solution to a problem. You know, it seems to me it's something Georgetown is doing to make them feel better. Oh, sure. It's, it's like the, 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 the American corporations, are, are it, it's extortion. I, I really think that it's being, it's, it's white guilt and, and what they're demanding is extortion money. And companies like Nike are delighted to pay, pay extortion because it, it, it's a way for them to, to, um, to, 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 to signal you know, their innocence. And then maybe nobody will ask Nike why they don't transfer their manufacturing of those expensive sneaks from China back into low-income black neighborhoods where they can create jobs so those young people who are spending $200 for their sneaks could be also active in manufacturing those sneaks. But as long as Nike, they'll allow, the, uh, they won't protest a few stores being burned down or looted, as long as they are able to continue uh, manufacturing overseas and be uh, uh, titans of social justice. Um, we will be talking to some of the Georgetown people. What are the questions either you'd like to ask them or the thoughts that you would give to them over this? You mean the recipients of it? Yes, the people who favor it. The people who favor it. Ask them to what extent would the transfer of this money address the slaughter of young children that are occurring just a half an hour drive in southeast Washington where we had, since George Floyd died, over 25 children under the age of 12 who were murdered in those streets. A little boy, four years old, Elijah LaFrance, in Dade County, Florida, was shot to death in his home on his fourth birthday. Or Dior Harris in Syracuse, New York, 11-month-old girl who was shot to death in her car with her mother, and she was murdered as well and two other toddlers were shot. The question, I, tell me how a discussion and dispensing of reparations addresses those critical issues, life and death issues. And how much time and effort should we be spending discussing reparations when we have uh, these kind of challenges? And um, there might be people who say, you could be right, this may not be helpful, but if it doesn't hurt, what's the harm? Well, the harm is it really um, pre presents the, the critical problem as somehow being external. The problems that black America faces is external and that white people have the power to change it if we can make them guilty enough. And, and so it's really dangerous when people are led to believe that the, the most severe challenges that they face are somehow determined by those people outside of themselves who have been defined as our enemies. White people are supposed to be the, 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 vic, the victimizers of black people. 
And so the message to black America is turn to the victimizer for your salvation. That's a complicated, confusing, self-destructive message to send to young people that somehow all of the problems that they face, underemployment, out of wedlock births, drug addiction, babies being shot to death, that all of those problems are, 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 are within the control of white America to change. That's the danger of the message. Can you talk a little bit about the shift in predominant philosophy and theory from the time of the 60s and 70s coming out of the civil rights movement to what we're hearing a lot in the media today? I think, uh, well, first of all, this critical race theory and others were on our campuses discussed as a bizarre uh, philosophy of, of, of social order. But some of the principles started in the 60s with the poverty programs with people like Cloud and Piven, these scholars at Columbia University School of Social Work, who were socialists, and they said one of the ways that we can move the country towards socialism is to really bankrupt it by flooding the system with welfare recipients. And Watts occurred at the time, so they said if you can separate work from income, it'll make fathers redundant. The nuclear family would be under attack. There will be increased drug addiction, dr school dropout weights, criminality, and what they predicted was true. But, but just being a social theory wasn't sufficient. But when the federal government stepped up the Office of uh, uh, Equal Opportunity or, or the poverty programs, where they actually opened offices to recruit people into the welfare system, welfare in the 60s in the black community was stigmatized. No one wanted to be on relief. So they removed the stigmatization of it. And as a consequence, uh, you had black families that had a man and a woman raising children. 85% of the families were whole in the early 60s. It declined to now 70% are born out of wedlock. They fell off that cliff. So what Cloward and Piven predicted was, was true. We spent $22 trillion in the last 50 years on programs to aid the poor. That's a form of, rep of reparations. <laughs> and what has happened? What Cloud and Piven predicted was true. The unemployment rate in New York was under 4% at a time when these welfare recipients were just flooded in. We relaxed the rules. And so as a consequence, what the, the, the naysayers predicted and helped orchestrate in the 60s is reality today. The other thing is, all of these cities where they, all of these inequities exist are run by black liberal democratic office holders. The promise of the civil rights movement was that elect blacks to elected office and we will be better for our people than the whites who were there before. Well, why haven't conditions improved in these cities, if race were the single issue, then why are young blacks failing in systems run by their own people? What criticism do you get for the things that you say? I don't, first of all, the people that I represent are low-income blacks. That's, 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 everyone has a reference group, someone they look to to help define their values 
For 40 years, I have uh, served and represented low-income people of all races. And, when I, and that's where I spend most of my time. 80% of my best friends have letters in front of their names, not behind them. <laughs> and, and so they, they are very supportive of what I'm telling you. We have 2,500 uh, voices of black mothers. These are mothers who, black mothers who lost their children to urban violence. They are supportive of the police. And so these are the, so all I hear from them are words of support for these views. And um, you, you mentioned some of the questions raised by this notion of paying, paying for past wrongs. What are a list of some of those that you'd have to determine to try to fairly pay people? You know, we were talking about how do, will people have to prove how much, what their ancestors did and how, how black they are and so on. What happens to biracial families Meaning? in this, uh, in this uh, quest to be dispensing of, of money? I really think the whole enterprise of discussing reparations uh, that, that plays on white guilt is so insulting and so patronizing. It's, it, it's so demeaning for someone to, to take seriously a discussion of saying to white America, because of history of slavery, nobody should be defined by their birth defect. How many, of, how many of the people watching this show want to be defined by the worst things they've ever done when they were young? None of us would, because we are, we are a country of second chances. We are a com country of redemption. None of us should be defined by the worst of what we were. And nor should this nation be defined by the worst of what. We are the only nation that ever fought a war to end slavery. Do you think black Americans, if they feel like you do, should make it clear we aren't going to take any money? That's what the Woodson Center is trying to do right now, to give voice to the 80% of blacks surveyed, according to uh, the surveys, are against defunding the police. Yet San Francisco just took $3.5 million from the police to give them to black businesses that are being, uh, you know, destroyed <laughs> by demonstrators and they're being robbed. And so uh, I just think that, uh, that, 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 that's, that that's where we are. You know? like, I think it's taking hold. I mean, I don't think it's no, going it is. away. It's unfortunate because the assumption is that black America has no personal agency, that all of the problems facing them are external. I'm from the 60s. I'm a veteran of the 60s. I would almost welcome back the old-fashioned bigotry. <laughs> and the reason was, at least there was respect. The, our, the opponents that I faced in the civil rights movement even if you hate someone, you have to respect it. You acknowledge it. But there's nothing worse than someone who treats you like an impotent child. And so I, 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 I would prefer the old-fashioned bigotry. At least it is defined as something that is external. But nothing is worse when somebody thinks they're coming to you with a helping hand, and that helping hand is destroying you. So do you think that's what reparations will reparations do? Reparations is just another uh, way 
of black self-destruction, not black self-determination, it's self-destruction because it posits all of the problems that we're facing on somebody that they say does not like, like us or hates us. Where in the world does anybody um, identify someone as their victimizer who knocks them down and they demand that the victimizer come and lift them up? If somebody does, they ought to take you to a mental institution. The victimizer might have knocked you down, but the victim has to get up. We used to understand that when black power was defined by self-determination. I don't know how we devolved from black power to black, to, to black Lives Matter with our hand out. That should be the symbol of black, uh, black Lives Matter, a black person with their hand out, begging white folks to take steps to liberate them from themselves. And, and it also prevents black America from addressing the enemy within. The black on black murder rate that is occurring, white people can do nothing about that. That is an internal enemy that must be addressed internal to the black community. So what I'm recommending, there be a one year moratorium on talking about white people at all. Just stop talking about white people for one year and come together within the black community and talk about what we can do to address the enemy within. That's Robert Woodson, who is against the idea of paying reparations to fellow black Americans. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. If you're interested in this topic, please listen to my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours. This week, an interview with a Jesuit priest who talks about why the Jesuits are paying a form of reparations to the tune of $100 million to black Americans whose ancestors helped build Georgetown University. Also, watch my cover story on this topic on Full Measure. That's Sunday, January 30th. For all the ways to watch on TV or even online, you can go to CherylAckeson.com and check out the Full Measure tab. You'll see a list of stations and places to watch. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. All right, folks, all of you know the story about my crick in my neck and how I bought a MyPillow a few years ago, and all of a sudden, my neck just healed up. In fact, the orthopedist couldn't figure out what the heck had John done. I, it was simple. I just bought one of Mike Lindell's pillows, and I all of a sudden found I wasn't sleeping right on my pillow. Mike's pillows did the trick. Well, guess what? He's done it again. He's got something new. He's now introducing his new My Slippers. You want the best slipper ever, the best foot experience late at night. Well, Mike has got, he took over two years to develop this. He designed it to wear this slipper indoor and outdoor all day long. It's comfortable, it's durable. It's made with MyPillow foam and impact gel to help prevent fatigue in the slipper. And it's made with quality leather suede. They look good, they feel good, they wear good. For a limited time now, Mike is offering 50% off his new My Slippers. You will also receive a free book with any purchase. The My Slippers are so comfortable that you'll want to get some for the whole family. It's a great gift, especially heading into springtime. So here, here's what you do. You go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's easy to remember, right? The promo code JUSTNEWS and you will get 
deep discounts on all the MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets, the MyPillow mattress topper, and of course, the MyPillow towel set. And don't forget, y'all want those My Slippers. You gotta have them. They're incredible. Here's another way you can take advantage of this. You can call 800 951 3715 and use the promo code Just News when someone picks up. Call 800 951 3715. Use the promo code Just News. Pretty simple stuff for the best slipper sheet pillow experience of your life. <laughs> 